If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it and turn with me once more to the 8th chapter of Exodus. Exodus chapters 8 and 9 is where we're going to be this morning. If you're here and you're a first-time guest, we want to extend a warm welcome to you. But over the last few months, we've been walking through these uh, first several chapters in the book of Exodus. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with these plagues that we read about from Exodus chapter 7 all the way through chapter 11, which the Lord God poured out upon Egypt just before he brought his people up out of their bondage and oppression. And so within these chapters, God is about to absolutely destroy the nation of Egypt. He's going to bring the nation to its knees. He's going to destroy it economically, politically, socially. Uh, He's going to destroy it in terms of its reputation in the world. And he's utterly going to bring it to its knees religiously. Through this series of plagues that come upon Egypt, God is going to obliterate the power of Egypt in a massive demonstration of his power. And, And Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, says that through the use of these plagues, God is executing judgment on the gods of Egypt. And so when you understand the plagues in that light, God is judging Egypt for its worship of idols. And the purpose behind these plagues, there's a statement that's made over and over again in these chapters. It's the statement, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You ought to take a pen or a highlighter and highlight the number of times that you see that phrase in these chapters. And it's a reminder to us that God's purpose behind his judgment is knowledge of himself as the one true God. So through the use of these plagues, the Egyptians, God wants them to know who he is and how he alone is the one true God, not their idols not the false gods that they worship. And so that word plague comes from a Latin word that means severe blow or wound, which is really what these plagues were. And again, it's a judgment on the religious system, the idolatrous system that was true of of ancient Egypt. Archaeologists throughout the years have uncovered and unearthed all sorts of shrines and temples that were devoted to their gods. And so their religious life, their their religious system really dominated life in Egypt. And Egypt was polytheistic in its religion, which simply means that they worshiped many gods. And so polytheism, this is held in contrast with monotheism, which Christianity is monotheistic, the worship of the one true God. Well, some estimates say that the ancient Egyptians worshipped upwards of 2,000 gods and goddesses, and these were often associated with some particular element of nature. So what you see happening here in these chapters, it's almost as if God is is bringing order to chaos uh, in a very real, tangible way so as to demonstrate where idolatry always leads. Uh, Either it will be Christ or it will be chaos. That's the message of the Bible. Either a person worships God or they worship some idol. And if you remember our definition for idolatry, 
An idol is any person, place, thing, or idea that a person looks to as their ultimate source. And so that means that there really is no such thing as an atheist. You say, well, hold on now, Pastor. I know someone I work with who says he's an atheist. Well, he may say that he's an atheist. But, but my point is, every person alive is a worshiper of someone or something. And by that definition, there really is no such thing as an atheist. Everyone worships. Because to be a worshiper, you simply have to be a human being. Man has been made for the purpose of worship. And he will worship something. That is, he will appeal to something as being his ultimate source. Now, the problem with our fallen humanity is that we worship anything and everything but the one true God. Our sin has alienated us from God so that we worship idols. So it will always be the worship of God or it will be the worship of idols. And and an idol can be anything that simply takes the place of God in a person's life. And so you need to keep in mind all of this when you understand these plagues as being God's judgment that he's executing upon the idols of Egypt. Now, I want you to look with me in chapter 8, verse 20. And so we're sort of dealing with these plagues in three sets of three. We've already dealt with the first three. Uh, We'll deal with the second set of three this morning. And uh, verse 20 brings us to the fourth plague, which is a plague of flies. Now, notice what the Bible says. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So now, notice here, God is saying he's going to make a distinction between his people who are living there in the land of Goshen, as opposed to the Egyptians. Uh, Their their land is going to be overrun by this plague of flies, but God is going to protect and preserve his own people who are living there in Goshen. Now, sometimes you'll hear someone say something like this uh, to try to um, sort of disprove the supernatural element behind these plagues, and they'll say something like, uh, well, this is just a series of natural disasters. There's really no supernatural explanation of this, but it's really just a series of natural disasters that happened in ancient Egypt. To which I would simply say, well, how in the world can you explain the land of Goshen, not one fly being found in the land of Goshen, but the rest of Egypt was overrun by flies? Because this is a supernatural, miraculous event whereby God is literally turning creation, the very elements of creation that the Egyptians worshipped, God is turning all of that on its head. He's turning their world upside down so that they know that the elements of creation that they worship are not sovereign, 
These are not God's. No, God alone is creator. God alone is sovereign over his creation. And he's going to prove it by preserving his people and sparing his people from this judgment. And so verse 23, thus I will put a division between my people and your people, and tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Kind of reminds me, I was thinking about this. My, my granddad used to sit on the front porch with a fly swatter. <laughs> Some of you may can identify with that. And I always thought, why, Papa, why do you always sit out here on the, fr- on the front? Flies are everywhere. You're never going to kill all of these flies that, that buzz around. He'd say, no, but I'm going to get this one. Now imagine you're sitting on the front porch in Egypt and you see a black cloud coming your way and it's nothing but flies. So literally the the land is overrun by all of these swarms of flies all throughout the land of Egypt. The land is ruined by the swarm. Verse 25, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said it would not be right to do so For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people, and not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and he did not let the people go. And so I want to continue speaking from this subject, God versus the idols of Egypt, because that's really what we see happening in these chapters that record these 10 specific plagues. Now, sometimes we may forget that the gods that these Egyptians worshipped Uh, were always a means to an end. Uh, The gods promised power and money or prosperity and fertility. They promised their worshipers some sense of stability, and so that's what the worshipers were always after when they pursued these idols, and which were really not gods, but just figments of their own imagination. But they attached some sort of ultimate significance to these type of things, which, by the way, we're still prone to worship the very same things today. We may not worship the goddess Hecate like the Egyptians did, that particular frog goddess. However, fertility, abundance, success, these are still things that oftentimes we, we go after because in our hearts we make these things ultimate. So God is moving against the idols of Egypt because 
the Egyptians were idolatrous in every element of life. And these plagues and the deliverance of Israel is really the greatest testimony in the Old Testament to the emptiness and the futility of idolatry. Now, at least two or three folks this past week have asked a question to me. Well, we're dealing with these, these plagues, and you keep mentioning these gods and goddesses of ancient Egypt. Were they something, or were they nothing? Well, the answer to that question is both. Now, they're, so, they're nothing in the sense that they are not really gods. Uh, they are not really rivals to the one true God. God is sovereign. God alone is God. And so in that sense, they are nothing. However, they are something in the sense that they're something to the worshipers themselves. And so what then happened as these Egyptians, or anybody else for that matter, when they make something ultimate and that is not God and God alone, it becomes an idol which then gives the enemy an opportunity for a stronghold, a spiritual stronghold to be established in a person's life. Which is why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that what pagans sacrifice to their gods, ultimately they sacrifice to demons. So the real power behind idolatry is a dark and demonic power, a satanic power by which Satan holds societies and individuals under his grip, having blinded them to the knowledge of the truth. That's why the scripture says that Satan is the ruler of this present world system. It refers to him as the God of this age, the God of this world system. He's ultimately the power behind all different manifestations of idolatry in the lives of people. So the gods of Egypt, they're, they're not gods at all, but they're idols made by human hands, and, and the Egyptians attached significance and ultimate meaning to these particular idols. Now, last week I pointed out how the first three plagues are plagues that bring mental distress. The very first thing that God does is he turns the Nile River to blood. Uh, the Nile was really the source that Egypt looked to, uh, that it considered to be sort of the, the lifeblood of the nation, the circulatory system of the entire nation. Egyptian life ebbed and flowed with the Nile River, which they literally worshipped. So it's significant then that the very first thing that God does, he says, if this is what you look to as being your ultimate source, what you think is your source of life I'm going to turn into a cesspool of death. And then that's followed up by the plague of frogs as the entire country is overrun by frogs, which the Egyptians worshipped, by the way. It was a capital offense in ancient Egypt to kill even one frog. And so they worshipped frogs, but they had no problem drowning the Hebrew infants in the Nile River. It just goes to show you how idolatry and sin so perverts and twists a person's thinking. And then that's followed by the third plague where dust becomes gnats, and these gnats become a very real nuisance to the Egyptians. So all of that brings an element of mental distress as those things which the Egyptians look to as their source, these things are polluted and affected. Now the next three plagues are beyond distressing. 
And so there's this intensification that happens. Uh, The plagues progressively become worse. And so their source has been affected. Well, now we could say the next three plagues really attack those things that the Egyptians look to as their strength. And so now their strength begins to fail. And so these are plagues that bring physical discomfort. Physical discomfort. The situation gets so bad, things really become uncomfortable. Kind of reminds me of a quote I heard by C.S. Lewis, who said that God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. Pain is God's megaphone by which he rouses a deafened world. Now, can you identify with that in your own life, personally? I don't know about you, but oftentimes those comfortable seasons in my life, I also tend to be complacent spiritually. But the moment that the bottom falls out in my life, or the moment that God allows some type of pain to be introduced into my life for whatever reason, whatever form it may take, it's often when I hurt that God really has my attention. So if these first three plagues strike at Egypt's livelihood, these next three plagues strike at its lifestyle. And now there's this element of physical discomfort that they experience as their manner of living is turned upside down. Now you know that when a person is accustomed to a particular lifestyle, things always become uncomfortable when their situation changes. Now, I don't know what you want most out of life, but I would probably assume that every person in this room, you want stability. I want stability when it comes to my finances. I want stability when it comes to my family. You want stability when it comes to your health. Some of you perhaps have walked through a season of life where your health, it's been like a roller coaster. And so when stability is removed from the equation, oftentimes we hit the panic button in life. And that's where Pharaoh and these Egyptians find themselves concerning these next plagues. So what is this fourth plague? Plague number four involves swarms of flies overrunning the land. And it's interesting to me that God doesn't have to use something major or impressive to get our attention. But he can use something small and insignificant. And in this case, it's something small but multiplied beyond proportion. Swarms of flies. Literally, the Hebrew language here says that Egypt will be overrun by swarms, which sort of indicates that this this involves insects of every sort. Now, there's some lessons that we can learn from these verses that we've read. And number one, notice with me how God's word is unchanging in its demand. Verse 20, the Lord says to Moses, confront Pharaoh, and here's what I want you to say, let my people go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let my people go, I'm going to send in the flies. And your entire countryside is going to be overrun by these swarms of flies. But notice that God's demand is unchanging. His word to Pharaoh is unchanging. At least seven times in these chapters, you see these same words being repeated to Pharaoh. Let my people go that they may serve me. And so this is a sovereign imperative given by the one whose rightful authority that Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge. He's the kind of guy who is accustomed to giving orders, not receiving orders. 
But you see, God's not asking him to release the Israelites. He's not saying, hey, let's sit down and talk about this, Pharaoh. Let's hash this out, mano y mano. No, he's, he's issuing this demand by means of his authoritative word, let my people go, and here's the purpose for their release, so that they may serve me. That's the purpose behind the exodus. Which, by the way, do you know that's the purpose behind your salvation? You've been saved and set apart by God for himself for this specific purpose, and it's worship. Uh, later on, when God gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the first commandment is, no other gods before me. The second commandment, don't make any graven image. Don't come up with this idea of who you think I am, God says, and then worship that idea. God says, for I am a jealous God. So let me tell you something. God will not share you with anything. Did you know that? He is absolutely jealous for you, jealous for your worship, jealous for your affections, jealous for your devotion. So he's going to release his people. He's going to lead his people out of Egypt for the purpose of worship. One person has said it this way, until God's spirit comes to set us free, we're all held captive by Satan who keeps us enslaved in our sins. But then, while we're still in bondage, we hear the gospel in which God says to sin and Satan, let my people go. And the good news about Jesus Christ is that Jesus is our emancipation proclamation. There was a time in my life when God spoke into my life by means of the gospel call, and here's what he said to the evil one, let my people go that they may serve me. And God's going to see to it that he gets glory. And Pharaoh's not going to stand in the way between God and his glory and the worship of God's people. And so not only does God's word not change, but then notice something else here. God's people are set apart and distinct. God says, Pharaoh, if you re refuse to let my people go that they may serve me, if you don't send them out, then I'm going to send in the flies. But you need to know something. I'm going to make a distinction between Israel and Egypt. I'm going to make a distinction between my people and your people. I'm going to put a division between my people and the people of Egypt. So the plague would affect the Egyptians, but God would protect his own people living in the land of Goshen. So he would preserve his people by means of his grace while dealing out judgment upon the idols of Egypt. Now, folks, this, this, this is another pattern of salvation that we see here. Not only does salvation mean that I've been saved for the purpose of worship and I've been set apart by God for himself, but listen, I've also been saved from wrath. Did you know that if you're a child of God, you've been delivered from the wrath which is coming upon the world of unbelief? From time to time, I have conversations with, with church members and Christians and people who just get so been out of shape and they're, they're afraid that they're going to be experiencing the tribulation and the coming wrath of God upon the world to which I say you've been saved from the wrath which is coming upon the world if you're in Christ you've been saved from judgment now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be spared from hard times in life because we live in a broken fallen world and that just goes with the territory 
But the Apostle Paul told, told the church at Thessalonica that you've been, you've been saved from the wrath which is to come. And so I hold to the view that the church is going to be raptured out of here before God's judgment is poured out upon the world uh, in, in the last days. Now, you want to be here for that, be my guest, but I've, I've been rescued from that. It's coming. Kind of reminds me, you know, a couple weeks ago, I was telling our starting point group, you know, we were talking about doctrine, and, and, and there are secondary doctrines that where we can have disagreement within the church and still have fellowship with one another, and I know the doctrine of the end times and that kind of thing sort of falls in that category. But I made the statement, there, there are folks who, who, who believe that the church is going to be here on earth during the tribulation period, to which I've always said, well, when the rapture happens, I'm going to look at those folks as we're on our way up, and I'm going to say, I told you so. I've been saved from that. Aren't you glad you've been saved from judgment? You want to know how you've been saved from judgment? Because Jesus drank the bitter cup of God's wrath for you on the cross. The wrath that your sin deserved that was poured out upon Jesus who suffered and died in your place so that I've been saved from wrath and now I've been forgiven of my sin and given eternal life. And then notice how God's will is non-negotiable with no debate. Sure enough, the flies overrun the land of Egypt. The whole land is ruined. Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron in verse 25, and, and listen to what he says here. He says, go and sacrifice to your God within the land. In other words, he wants to enter into negotiations. And this is the, four, uh, the first of four compromises that Pharaoh is going to offer. Go serve your God, but do it all within the land. He's wanting to keep the people in Egypt and say, okay, well, serve your God, but do it right here within the boundaries of the land. And yet, the only terms that have been laid down for him have been the unconditional release of God's people. They've got to put a three days journey between them and Egypt. They've got to, they've got to put Egypt in their rear view. They've got to turn their back on Egypt. That's the will of God for their life. Their redemption uh, demands that. And yet, listen, there are a lot of people who want to live with sort of one foot in the kingdom of God and another foot in the world. You might could say they want to serve God while also living in Egypt. They want to serve God while also serving the idols of culture. But you see, listen, folks, the gospel calls for unconditional surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world or the things in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And by world, what John is referring to there is this fallen world system, the shared values and idolatrous ideas that the world uh, says is ultimate. Don't buy into that. Don't base your life around that. Don't build your life upon the shifting sands of, of cultural idols because you can't have the best of both worlds. So this first plague then deals with the flies. Now notice the, second, the, the fifth plague, the second in this series of plagues. It involves the death of livestock. Now we won't read the text, but you move into chapter 9. You read about 
all of Egypt's livestock that's out in the field. Uh, they, they fall prey to this particular plague. And this is the first plague that involves the widespread loss of personal property. Now, you need to know that cattle and domestic animals were precious to the Egyptians, even worshipped by the Egyptians. Horses were highly valued. Cattle, these were necessary for their daily life, considered to be sacred animals. And so you can really see how this would be a major blow on the nation's lifestyle to experience such a widespread plague on its livestock. Call it mad cow disease or whatever. Not only did it affect their cattle, but it affects their horses and their donkeys and their camels and their herds. So that together, all of these represented the source of the nation's produce. Again, notice, God is, God is attacking those very things that the Egyptians looked to as their strength. This would have, had, would have had serious economic fallout in their land with camels and donkeys and horses, and all of these were used for transportation and plowing and work in the field. This plague hit Pharaoh right in the pocketbook because he would have had st staggering amounts of livestock under his own control. And so think about it this way. Uh, the grocery stores, Kroger, Food Line, where you go to get your stuff, all of that's being shut down. All of that's being affected. And so this is really hitting the Egyptians in their pocketbook. And not only is it the source of the nation's produce, but it's also the symbol of the nation's strength. Because ancient nations were often assessed on the basis of their herds, how many war horses they had. Their affluence was tied up with how much cattle and livestock they had. Barns being overflowing with grain. Their fields and their hillsides being dotted with thousands of cattle. All of this is the symbol of the nation's status and strength. And so imagine the horror now when the Egyptians look out and they see dotting the landscape, everywhere they look, they see carcasses. Carcasses of those very animals that they worshipped and held as being sacred. The carcasses of those animals which they prized as being the strength of their nation. Many of their gods were associated with, with horses and cattle. The goddess Hathor uh, had the head of a cow, and she was uh, worshipped as being sort of this symbol of beauty and the, sort of this Aphrodite, a symbol of affluence. So God is delivering a message here. And the message is, your livestock is not your strength. The strength of a nation does not come in the amount of stuff that it possesses. No, God says, I'm your strength and your strength alone. Nations rise and fall with the Lord say so. And so all of these dead animals would be the sign of the nation's judgment. Here's a nation that's come under judgment. The psalmist says in Psalm 50, verse 10, every beast of the forest is mine. I own the cattle of the thousand hills. Now, folks, listen to me. When the hand of God is against a nation, all of the wealth and the prosperity in the world cannot help that nation. There's no safety in its military strength. 
There's no safety in the number of its planes and tanks and destroyers. Psalm 20, verse seven, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 33, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its might, it cannot rescue. And so the principle then that we learn here that it's often easy for us to take pride in the strength of what we own, in the strength of what we possess. You can't look to your 401k as being the source of your strength. What is it ultimately, though, that you look to for your strength? Is it your financial portfolio? Is it maybe this nice little nest egg that you've got tucked away for yourself at some point? If that's what you think your strength is, friend, you're sadly mistaken. No, the Bible says that the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in time of famine. What is it? Who is it that keeps us alive in hard times? It's not the stuff we accumulate for ourselves. That's not my strength. No, my strength and my hope is found in the Lord God alone. So that's this plague. And then that gives way to the sixth plague, a plague of sores, an outbreak of sores. Physically, the physical health of the Egyptians is targeted by judgment. Again, we're dealing with things that they look to as their strength. So now even their appearance and their own physical health has come under judgment. Verse 8 the Lord says to Moses, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw it up in the air in front of Pharaoh so that it might become fine dust that settles over the land of Egypt. And it will break out in boils and sores on the bodies of the Egyptians. Now it's interesting to me that this soot comes from the kiln. You say, what do you mean kiln? As in brick kiln. As in, what were the people of Israel enslaved to? Pharaoh had had them enslaved to the brick kilns, making bricks for his building projects. And so their bodies had been physically broken down through the years of oppression as they were slaving away, making bricks at these kilns. Well, now here's some soot from the kiln. God's saying, okay, now your bodies are going to be broken down. So really, it's a picture of God's justice. God's unchangeable law, Galatians chapter 6, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And so you've got these sore boils that break out all over the bodies of the Egyptians. And the god Imhotep that they worshipped and believed to be the god of healing was powerless to bring them the healing that they needed. The god Serapis that they worshipped and saw as being a god who healed was powerless and could not heal. There was no medicine. Their ultimate strength did not lie in their physicians. No, this is God's judgment. So just imagine yourself being a fly on the wall in Egypt as all of this is happening. A river becoming blood, frogs and gnats everywhere, 
swarms of insects, death of livestock, and now you've got all these painful blisters on your body, and yet despite all of that, the Bible says that Pharaoh's heart is still hardened. He refuses to submit to the will of God. You know, someone has well said that if you want to know if you've got rats in your basement, you don't quietly tiptoe down the steps trying not to make any noise because if you did that, you'd only look around and not see anything. No, if you're really serious about finding out whether or not you've got rats in your basement, invest in a cat. Introduce some stress into the situation and then you'll find out real quick what you've got on your hands. And so it is here because oftentimes it's under stress in real life experience that the true condition of my heart is revealed. And someone says, okay, well, pastor, I understand that this is, this is ancient Egypt and all of these plagues, of God's executing judgment on their gods, but how does this really apply to me where I'm living now? Well, listen, let me ask you this question. What do you look to as being your strength? What do you personally believe is your strength? Uh, let me say it another way. What do you look to as the basis for your justification as a man or a woman? Because for some of you, you would, you would say, well, it's, it's my abilities. It's what I can do. This is the strength that often I, I put all of my trust in, what I can do. And sometimes I think men fall prey to this. Because so much of our identity is attached to what we do by way of our vocation. Well, what's going to happen to you when you can't do that anymore? And you're at a loss. Because if that's what you really think is your strength, it's only going to prove empty in the end. Well, someone says, well, my strength is, is appearance. You may worship the idol of appearance and base your security upon how good you look in the eyes of other people. And so your drive in life and your main ambition in life is keeping up with appearances so as to never let your adoring followers down. Well, what about this? You may think that your strength is in your own moral performance. That the harder I work and the more that I prove myself being a moral, virtuous person, this is my strength. No, all of these folks are empty saviors because none of that can be your strength in life. What you do, who worships at your feet, what people say about you, how you look, all of these are vain and empty saviors. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he writes a little bit about this. And he says that oftentimes within our heart, he says there's what's known as a deep idol that somehow attaches itself to what he calls a surface idol. And often the deep idol is some type of an inward drive that a person has in their life that becomes ultimate. Uh, for example, if, if that deep desire in your heart is to be liked, or it's a desire for approval, this, this, this ultimate desire to have the approval of people, that may be the deep idol in your heart, it will then attach itself to some outward surface idol, maybe like social media, 
Uh, maybe about, maybe, maybe you've always got to wear the name brand. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. You've got to keep up with the Joneses. You've got to have a certain look because this is what really gives me the approval deep down that I so crave because it's what is ultimate. This is, this is my strength. We could go right on down the line. Uh, sometimes there's a deep idol of power that's enthroned in a person's life, this desire to want to be in control. And so then the surface idol, they look for some type of position so that they can then utilize that position to exert control over someone else so that they can make a sacrifice to that deep idol of power that's enthroned in their heart. So do you see how that works? Now folks, listen, where Christ is not enthroned in your heart, there will be something else enthroned in your heart. Call it self, call it whatever, it's an idol if it's not the Lord Jesus Christ. So that here's the key principle that we learn from this passage of Scripture. Jesus and Jesus alone is the strength of my heart. Jesus and Jesus alone is the strength of my life. Not what I do for him, not what I do for others, not what people say about me. No, it's Jesus and Jesus alone who is my strength, my security in life. It comes from him and him alone. Not my performance, but his performance. His sinless life. His substitutionary death. His bodily resurrection. His intercessory work for me right now at the Father's right hand. What is it then that gives me approval? Listen, in Christ, you've got all the approval you could ever need. You don't need the praises of other people. You don't need bouquets of praise laid at your feet in order to be a valuable man or a woman because no, you find all of that and then some in a relationship with Christ who reconciles you to the God that you've been made for and to worship and serve because he's the strength of your heart. He's the strength of your life. That's why Paul could write in Philippians chapter 4, I've learned whatever state that I'm in, I've learned to be content. Whether having a stuff, abundance, or, or, or being at a lack. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because for Paul, his, his strength didn't come from his stuff. It didn't come from his station in life. It didn't come from his situation. It came through Christ and Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my all. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. So when the bottom falls out and stress is often introduced in your life, friend, you find out what you're really looking to as your strength. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? By this point in the story, here you've got Pharaoh and all of his servants. Egypt's been brought to ruin. They're laying around commiserating, trying to provide some type of relief to the blisters on their body. 
And it kind of reminds me of another man in the Old Testament who lost everything that he had, lost his flocks, lost his herds, lost his children, a man who was reduced to ruin, plagued with sores, found himself upon an ash heap trying to scratch himself and bring relief to his body with a broken piece of pottery. You know who I'm referring to? Job. When others even encouraged him to curse God and die, Job refused, but here's what he said. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of his suffering, Job did not sin with his lips. And you say, okay, well, what made the difference? What's the difference between him and Pharaoh, a man who hardens his heart? The difference being that Job, his heart is tender and not hardened by idols. Job could say this, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a man who knew where his strength ultimately came from. What about you? What about you? Every head bowed, every eye closed. My friend, the good news of the gospel is that we can be delivered from the dead end road of idolatry and from the chaos that ensues when idols are enthroned in our hearts and lives. Can you say honestly that Christ is the strength of your life? Or is there some lesser thing that has been enthroned and made ultimate in your life? Maybe the Holy Spirit has sort of zeroed in on that in your life. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for the gospel that you've come to set the captive free. Idolatry enslaves, but Lord Jesus, you've come to set us free. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. Father, if there's any person this morning under the sound of my voice that doesn't know Christ, perhaps there's a void in their soul and they've tried to fill it with anything and everything but Christ alone. Lord, I pray that today be the day of salvation for that man, that woman, that student, that child, whomever. Lord Jesus, our crucified, risen, and coming King, may you be enthroned in our hearts and lives, for you alone are the strength of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.